0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. It's going to be an interesting episode this week. Once more, we are covering the life of Julius Caesar. However, this is separate from our regularly scheduled Julio-Claudian Saga episodes because we're jumping back in time before Caesar was the most powerful man in Rome we're going to look at the time period in his life in which he first started rapidly accelerating towards becoming the main man of the republic however we'll also be looking at the one man who rose up against caesar and the roman army in order to stop the conquering machine that was rome this man was vercingetorix a chieftain in the region known to the romans as gaul This is an episode I've wanted to do for a very long time, basically since I first started up the podcast, but I can't do every episode I want to do all at once. The conflict between Julius Caesar and Vercingetorix is a pivotal point for Western Europe. It would go on to influence decades, if not centuries, of future political ties between Rome and its Western provinces. And obviously, if you know anything about Roman history, then you know this story is a tragedy for the Celtic people of Western Europe. This is finally a story about Rome not from within the conquering army, but from the outside as we see the eagle-laden banners of the Republic marching on its neighbors. And it is the story of a man who decidedly did not want to see this happen to his people. A man who would defy one of the most powerful figures in all of history so without further ado let's begin the story we're going back in time to gaul of the first century bce in celtic nightmare in the background history lesson for this episode we're going to take a look at gaul and the celtic people so let's start off with the latter who are the celts that is actually a very hard question to answer When you say the word Celtic in the 21st century, at least here in America, you're probably going to think of Ireland. In a broader 21st century view, Celtic refers to any people who currently speak a Celtic language. That would mean the Gaelic-descended people of Ireland, the Scottish Gaelic people, the people of Wales, the people on the island of Man, the people of Cornwall in southwestern England, and the Breton people of northwestern France. However, for a Roman citizen in the first century BCE, maybe only that last group would come anywhere close to their views of what it meant to be a Celt, and even then, the Bretons are completely distinct from the Celtic people of ancient Gaul. We're not even sure where the term Celt comes from. The first recorded instance of the word Celtic comes from ancient Greece with the term Celti being used to describe people from southern France around modern-day Marseille but would also be used a little later by Herodotus to refer to people in southern Germany and other parts of Western Europe. It would also be used to describe certain tribes living out as far east as modern-day Turkey. It's believed that the word Celtic might have its roots in the very ancient Proto-Indo-European language, aka the language that gave birth to many modern languages including English, Spanish, German, Persian, Hindi, and Irish. Possible interpretations of this theory seem to point to Celtic coming from possible source words meaning either to hide, to heat, or to impel. What we do actually know is that by the time Caesar was marching his army westward, he reported that the people of Gaul referred to themselves as Celts. It would also be used to refer to tribes living throughout the Iberian Peninsula. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's really hard to pin down what Celtic actually means in a historical context because basically everyone who lived outside of Italy at one point or another was possibly referred to as Celtic. So let's now shift focus to talk about Gaul. It's easy to reduce Gaul as just being ancient France, but that is far from the truth. It encompassed a large swath of Western Europe including Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and parts of Switzerland, Germany, and Italy. The Romans and Greeks called the region Gallia. And though Gallia and Gaul may sound vaguely similar, the two are actually completely different in terms of how they came about. Gallia comes from a Celtic word meaning power, thus making the Gallics the powerful people. The word Gaul comes from the Frankish-German root meaning land of the foreigners. But Gaul itself was not a homogenous region, it was divided into three different areas referred to as Belgica in the north, Aquitania in the south, and Celtica in the middle. Obviously, we're going to be focusing a lot on Gallia Celtica. The people who would eventually become the Gauls probably arrived in the area sometime during the Bronze Age in the mid-2nd millennium BCE centuries later in the 5th century bce we really start to see a larger culture form within the region as it spread throughout what we know as gaul now it just so happened that the greeks had also set up settlements in southern gaul long before rome started marching around the area these settlements most prominent being massalia aka modern-day marseille would have traded with the locals It's also recorded that a few tribes in Gaul, especially the Arverni tribe in Gallia Celtica, interacted with the Carthaginian Empire in the 200s BCE. The Carthaginians were the people with Hannibal, they brought elephants over into Rome, it was a whole thing we might get into later. The Arverni were the largest tribe and the head of a Gallic Empire. Now, it would be very easy to believe in Roman propaganda that the people of Gaul were backwoods tribes who were far primitive compared to Rome. This was far from the truth. Like I said, the Arverni tribe was an empire. They had legitimate cities and a thriving economy that relied on both Greece, Rome, the Germanic tribes to the north and the people of the British Isles. However, Rome came knocking on Gaul's door in 154 BCE after the Arverni and other tribes attacked the former Greek now Roman settlements along the Mediterranean. The same would happen thirty years later and the Arverni tribe was dismantled, though they would remain one of the most powerful tribes in the region. This time, however, Rome decided it would set up shop within Gaul. Things would remain rocky for the next several decades until one Roman general decided it was time for his nation to rapidly expand in defense against Rome. At this point in time, Julius Caesar was already famous and infamous in many Roman circles due to his time as both a praetor, a judicial officer, and a follower of the former dictator Sulla. He had also just served as Consul of Rome, a role somewhat akin to the Prime Minister of the Republic for the year 59 BCE. During this time, Caesar had joined together with his buddies Pompey Magnus and Crassus to form the first triumvirate. Listen to episode 15 of the show for that story. However, being consul of Rome was a taxing job, quite literally, as Caesar was more or less in debt when 58 BCE came around. Another funny thing happened during his time as consul. The proconsul, aka provincial governor, of Transalpine Gaul passed away. The Senate decided to grant Caesar proconsular power of Transalpine Gaul, though in a bit different from the usual powers. Caesar was already the proconsul of Cisalpine Gaul, the bit of Gaul on the southeastern side of the Alps that was within Italy. In Transalpine Gaul, he was more of a commander over the local legions than any sort of government official. Everything was basically lined up for him to conquer the region, which is what historians seem to agree upon was the Senate's reason for granting Caesar proconsular powers of the region. So that's the facts of the matter. Caesar is in debt and has basically become a bullet and a gun pointed right at the people of Gaul, who were already in a rocky situation with Gaul from the previously mentioned events within the past century. Caesar knew that a successful campaign season, especially a campaign or two that might result in the conquest of Gaul, would line his pockets and get him out of that post-consul debt. All he needed was the right threat to show up. Luckily for Caesar, the Helvetii had just been displaced from their homeland. The Helvetii were a group of tribes living in Switzerland who had been forced out of the region by the southern migrating Germanic tribes. Seeking freedom, the Helvetii attempted to travel westward into Transalpine Gaul via Cisalpine Gaul. Word from the local people eventually made its way to Caesar, who decided that these migrating tribes were actually a threat to the Republic. But wait, it's actually worse than that because the Helvetii had actually asked Caesar for permission to cross through Roman territory on their way to Transalpine Gaul, and he had refused them. He then decided that these innocent displaced tribes were a threat and led his army to attack the Helvetii. Little did Caesar know that this campaign against the Helvetii would actually spark a several year conflict that has come to be known as the Gallic Wars. Over the next few years, Caesar led several military campaigns against other tribes in the area. Many of these campaigns were either outright illegal or against tribes who had a history of friendship with the Roman people. It became very apparent to the tribes of Gaul that Caesar and the Roman army would not stop until they had conquered the entire region. This led to a massive split in Gallic behavior where some tribes surrendered to their new Roman overlords while other tribes stood against them. Many of the battles fought are outlined in Caesar's own autobiography, Commentariae de Bello Gallico. Obviously, this book is incredibly self-serving towards Caesar's own image. It's widely believed that almost every number he lists in his book, from the number of Gauls he fought in a battle to the number of Romans lost, he is greatly exaggerated in his favor. In fact, Caesar would have you believe that he basically never lost a single soldier in combat while his army was drastically outnumbered. His book would paint the Gauls as tribes of primitive people who were clearly outmatched by the Roman army. That's mostly false. The average Roman soldier was just as capable a fighter as the average Gallic soldier. The only difference was the structure of their armies. I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but Rome's secret to warfare was that they were incredibly organized. However, this pattern of organization was relatively new during the Gallic Wars. In 107 BCE, statesman Gaius Marius, who just so happened to be Caesar's uncle, created a series of reforms that would help inject a new lease on life to the stagnant growth of the Roman military. Under the Marian reforms, as they would come to be known, The Roman military was basically standardized across every single soldier. Now, the rich had more or less the same equipment as the common folk. Cohorts were formed which were units of 480 soldiers. Ten cohorts along with a couple hundred extra soldiers of other capacities formed a legion. You had 5,000 men all basically equipped with the same weaponry who were now ready to steamroll any less organized military that lesser organized military in this case was the many tribes of gaul the one thing that was truly stopping the gauls from mounting a legitimate defense against caesar was that they were unorganized a single gallic fighter had to supply his own weaponry that meant a rich soldier had very good armor while a poorer soldier had to make do with whatever was on hand on top of that it was almost impossible to get the tribes to band together Like I said, some tribes just straight up joined Rome's side because they knew their tribe alone would not be able to stop the invading army. And to top off all of this, Caesar was now trying to turn the Gallic Wars into a publicity stunt. Despite now being the most well-known member of the First Triumvirate, Caesar, at the time, was considered the weakest link of the trio. Pompey was already a first-class general with many victories under his belt. Crassus was ridiculously wealthy, probably the richest man in all the Republic. Caesar needed to prove himself to be fit to stand alongside them, and hopefully surpass them one day. This would cause Caesar to lead two more campaigns into lands no Roman had ever gone before. Germany and Britain. Like I said, Caesar needed a publicity boost in order to assert himself as a member of the First Triumvirate. So in 55 BCE, he decided he would be the first Roman military leader to cross the Rhine River. The Rhine, at this point in history, represented the northern border of the Republic. You did not cross the Rhine. And why would you? In the eyes of the Romans, that was basically a nightmare land of Germanic tribes who only wished to see you dead should you enter their territory. Well, Caesar got his reason to cross the Rhine when two Celtic tribes were forced from their homeland by Germanic tribes. Like the Helvetii before them, these tribes had asked Caesar if they could safely relocate into Roman-occupied territory in order to find a new life. Caesar said no. So to Germania they went. Well, Rome happened to be allies with one Germanic tribe, the Ubians, who told Rome that they were worried about the new influx of Celtic people. Caesar being Caesar, decided to turn his sword towards the north. He massacred a camp of Celtic people and then decided to continue marching towards the Rhine. In just 10 days, the Roman army built a wooden bridge that they could use to cross the river. In his book, Caesar goes into great detail over the specifications of the bridge, like it's the greatest bridge that was ever built. Over the next 18 days, his army attacked local Germanic towns, burning many to the ground. He never caught up to the Celtic tribes he was originally pursuing and decided to turn back around, tearing down the bridge once his army had crossed it. And that's the story of the first time a Roman army crossed the Rhine. Caesar would do it again just two years later with about similar results. Build a bridge, raid, return, tear down said bridge. But in 55 BCE, Caesar also decided he would be the first Roman commander to cross the British Channel to that mysterious island of Britannia. Caesar's expeditions to Britannia is noteworthy because he was not planning on conquering the island. Rome was aware of Britain, they had been operating in Gaul for decades and the Gauls traded with the people of the British Isles. However, no one had ever actually been to Britain before, at least not anyone from Rome who recorded it. It was also late summer to early fall, meaning it was definitely not the time for campaigning in Northern Europe. Caesar and a couple legions still set out for their expedition to Britain. Almost as soon as they landed, they were attacked by a local tribe and some of their ships were destroyed in a storm. Their luck on this expedition was very low due to the fact that Caesar had a limited army and no cavalry. After one victory on their part, Caesar decided to turn around before winter really kicked in. The next year, Caesar decided to return to Britain in full force with a much larger army. His goal was simple, subject the Britons. It would be many decades before the island was actually under Roman control, but Caesar's second expedition to the island was a very large step in that direction. After defeating a couple larger tribes, he managed to get various other tribes to agree to Roman occupation. They would offer tribute to the Republic, even if it was not much in terms of resources other than slaves. It was also in this second invasion where Caesar gives us a description of Britonic warfare that would go on to color narratives up through the modern day. Even though this description is only of one actual tribe, it's been used to describe Celtic warriors as a whole. They allegedly fought naked and covered themselves in blue body paint. Men shaved every part of their body except for the hair on top of their heads and their mustaches. They also were very adept at chariot warfare. Nonetheless, this site that was completely foreign to the Romans was not enough to grant the Britons victory. But back on the European mainland, things were beginning to change as the Gauls who were still willing to fight back began coalescing around a new champion. A single man who was willing to do whatever it took to take down Julius Caesar. We don't know much about Vercingetorix's life before he actually revolted against Caesar, besides that he lived in the Arverni capital city of Gergovia. He was allegedly born sometime around 80 BCE. His name can be almost literally translated as the Great King of Warriors. His father was a chieftain of the Arverni people who was put to death after seemingly hoping to do just what his son would eventually attempt, unite all of Gaul under his rule. One possible belief about why Vercingetorix's father was killed is that the elite of Arverni did not want Caesar's attention drawn to them, so they killed his father before there was a chance at that. Remember, there were people among the Gauls who were ready to settle and just let Caesar take control of their homeland. This was generally the upper-class citizens. They had more to gain from letting Rome take control. They'd have better access to the finery of the Republic, even if it meant losing their cultural identity. The common folk had nothing to gain from Rome taking charge. It's believed that Vercingetorix's rebellion began while Caesar was back in Rome in 52 BCE following the death of Publius Claudius, an ally of the First Triumvirate. Vercingetorix's rebellion was originally created to help support another rebellion happening further south in Gaul, led by the Carnutes tribe. However, when the other nobility of the Arverni got word of his actions, they agreed to exile Vercingetorix and those that were willing to follow him. Well, in revenge Vercingetorix turned his own forces on his people and conquered Gergovia. He was hailed by the masses as the new king of the Arverni, one who would be willing to take action against the tyranny of Rome. The next step in Vercingetorix's master plan was to get other tribes in on his alliance this ended up being wildly successful, though there's not really any source from the time that can tell us why. The Gauls had never had one single leader. Even when the Arverni had been an empire, they were still just one massive tribe within the still fractured Celtic nation. Somehow Vercingetorix was getting tribe after tribe to agree to his alliance. The most obvious solution to the question of why they joined is because Vercingetorix convinced them that he was their best chance at standing up to Caesar and liberating Gaul. It's also possible that Vercingetorix had been planning this for longer than history recorded, and he managed to convince important figures, such as the religious sect of druids, to tell the other tribes that he should be their leader. It was wintertime when Caesar caught word of the growing rebellion. Normally, you wouldn't wage war in winter, but Caesar decided this was something worth putting down. He marched his army through the snow of Gaul. This provided a horrific picture for the local people, seeing the Roman army persisting despite the weather. If you were willing to march in winter, you were either incredibly stupid or absolutely relentless. Unfortunately for the people of Gaul, Caesar was no idiot when it came to warfare. To counteract Caesar's wintertime marching, Vercingetorix decided to slowly starve out the Roman army. In order to make sure they had nowhere to properly camp, the new leader of the Gauls ordered that towns should be burned to the ground so they could not offer shelter or supplies to the Romans. On top of that, he planned attacks on Roman supply trains. Caesar's hopes, however, would not be completely trampled. One Gallic city refused to destroy itself, and now, It was in Caesar's sights. Despite the people going against his plans, Vercingetorix allowed the city of Avar come to stick around. It was the heavily fortified capital of the Bitoriges tribe and is now the site of the modern-day French commune of Bourges. It held a massive storehouse of grain that the Romans now desperately needed thanks to the scorched-earth tactics of Vercingetorix. The leader of the Gauls would not go to the town in person, but he remained nearby to continue harassing the Roman forces while they attacked. In late winter, the Roman forces laid siege to the city. The entire siege would last less than a month. In that time, the Roman army had built a proper military camp and massive siege towers that were built to scale the fortifications around Varricam. This was what the Romans were great at. They were organized, they were disciplined. Every soldier was basically also a carpenter out of necessity. So the people inside of Avar watched as over the next few weeks, Roman soldiers built massive towers that would help them go over the fortified walls of the city. To Vercingetorix's credit, he was forcing the Romans to lay siege to the city rather than continue marching elsewhere. If the Romans tried to leave, his army was right there to stop them. However, Avaricum was now their target and it would fall to Caesar and the army's siege towers. When the Roman towers were completed, the army piled into the city. It was recorded that about 40,000 people lived in Avaricum when the Romans laid siege to the city. Out of that, only 800 people managed to escape. The rest, men, women, and children, were all put to death. The survivors managed to reach the camp of Vercingetorix. The loss of Avaricum only strengthened Vercingetorix's army as more tribes reached out to ally with him. He returned to Gergovia to regroup and plan the future. Caesar and the Romans would remain in Avaricum until warmer weather came. When the true campaigning season of 52 BCE finally came along, it was time for the two armies to meet. Gergovia was located on a plateau high above a plain. It was the perfect defensive spot because the Romans would have to fight uphill. When warmer weather came along, it became clear to Vercingetorix that the Romans would march on his city and try to take it. The Roman legions initially captured several fortified waypoints on their way to Gergovia, but that only meant that Vercingetorix's forces needed to stay within the more secure city. Caesar was hoping to rely on the forces of the Aedui tribe to help him. The Aedui had once been one of Rome's most loyal allies within Gaul, but the relationship between the two had become pretty strained over the course of the Gallic Wars. When Caesar reached out this time he was met with resistance, so he had to briefly reroute to squash the Aedui into submission. The Romans tried to employ the same strategy they had used for Varicum with their siege on Gergovia. Things did not seem to be working out and it's not entirely clear what happened next because the only source of information we have over the siege is Caesar's personal writings. It's very clear from a modern perspective that in this passage of Caesar's Commentarii, he is trying to save face over the following battle. He wrote that he recognized the need to get Vercingetorix's army out of Gergovia due to the high ground advantage of the Gauls. In order to lure out the Gallic army, Caesar called for a retreat, hoping to bluff Vercingetorix into following the Roman army out into the plains below. In reality, whether Caesar actually called for a retreat or not, most of the Roman army at Gergovia pushed ahead to attack the city. They were completely overwhelmed when Vercingetorix's troops came out on horseback. This time, Caesar was forced to legitimately retreat to save his own life. If army had won the Battle of Gergovia, it would be his greatest victory over the Romans. How great though isn't really known because Caesar messes with the numbers of how many people died. He says about 750 Roman soldiers died. It's speculated that he brought somewhere between 20,000 to 40,000 soldiers, so that number would be incredibly low, nothing you would want to actually call a retreat over considering the number of people he brought. Nonetheless, the Gauls had won the battle, and it brought even more fame to Vercingetorix's name. He decided to take the victory and run with it, ordering his army to pursue Caesars. Unfortunately, even with a combined cavalry of several Gallic tribes, Vercingetorix's plan to chase down Caesar was ill-fated. The Romans managed to beat the Gauls in the ensuing battle and Vercingetorix withdrew his forces to the city of Alesia. This was another fairly well-fortified city, meaning Caesar would once more have to lay siege. During the siege, Sverigingedric sent out groups of cavalry to call upon other tribes as a relief force, hoping to surround Caesar's army and break the siege. However, the Romans were more than prepared for this. They doubled up their usual line of defense. They had Alesia surrounded, and then they also surrounded themselves with further barricades, creating essentially a Roman military donut with Alesia as the center. I don't know what flavor that donut would be, maybe like grape and fig, but I'm sure it wouldn't taste super great. When the relief of Gallic soldiers finally arrived, the outcome of the siege suddenly became uncertain. The relief force managed to penetrate the Roman outer fortifications. Meanwhile Vercingetorix's army was picking off Roman soldiers from inside Alacia's walls. It all seemed to point to one thing, Caesar's defeat. But in a diabolus ex machina moment, they arrived. Another wave of Roman soldiers. They seemingly arrived out of nowhere and started tearing through the Gallic relief army. Any hopes for a Gallic victory faded as Rome once more proved they were the mightier army. With all hope lost, Vercingetorix recognized what needed to be done. He convened a consul and told the other Gallic leaders that he would give himself up as a hostage, either to be killed immediately or imprisoned, in the hopes that it would stop Caesar from killing everyone. All by himself, Vercingetorix exited Alésia on his horse and rode to Caesar to turn himself in. The once mighty leader of the Gauls had been brought down. Caesar arranged for the king of the Arverni to be brought back to Rome, he was imprisoned in the Tullianum, a Roman prison created out of a former cistern. Virgin was held there for the next six years until he was finally executed in 46 BCE as part of Caesar's military triumph. However, Julius Caesar himself would also be dead within the next two years. <laughs> Despite the fact that Caesar would continue military campaigns in Gaul through 50 BCE, the siege and battle at Lacia is often considered the grand finale of the Gallic Wars. The region was now under Roman control, though it did not become an official Roman province well, actually, three separate provinces in 27 BCE under Emperor Augustus. Surprisingly, though, the Arverni were allowed to remain somewhat independent during this time. In fact, the Arverni Senate would remain more or less intact over the next several centuries until the Franks conquered the area. Vercingetorix himself would remain a symbol of the Gauls, and he's even still revered as a folk hero for the people of the French region of Auvergne, the region that was once controlled by the Arverni. Some even hail him as the first national hero of France. And now with this story ended, hopefully it will be the last time I have an episode over Julius Caesar. Despite his name being hailed as the great historical figure, I really wanted to do this story where Julius Caesar was just outright the villain. The multiple campaigns that made up the Gallic Wars showcased Roman military know-how, sure, but they were also mostly illegal and just existed to boost Caesar's ego. It's nice knowing that the Arverni more or less got the last laugh by outlasting the Western Roman Empire. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time it's back to Greece as we look at the early political systems of Athens, especially how its ancient code of laws came to be under a man whose name is still synonymous with unexpectedly harsh politics. Draco, the man who lent his name to the word draconian. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers.